Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, welcome back. Um, our next guest and I memorably spent a very fraught four hours in an overheated Perspex box, which was <clears throat> suspended from the eaves of Wembley Stadium um, during Live Aid, Uh when we had to deal with a bewildering uh, um, succession of interviewees, none of whom were quite sure why they were there, and then occasionally desperately fill when kind of they lost the link to Television Centre or to to Philadelphia or, or wherever it was. And all I remember about myself is I was a badly dressed little ball of confusion... But I was, I knew that sitting quite near me, probably with the sound of Hawaiian guitars and surf, you know, breaking on the pebbles, was this island of urbanity. To my mind, was was dressed in a kind of perfectly pressed seersucker suit and and a kind of button-down shirt with a tie from one of the better universities, yes. Exuding calm and geniality, only uh, indulging himself in a tone of asperity when I, I might occasionally underestimate the number of top 20 records that Big Country had had. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we can forgive, we can understand why, why he might do that. Um, He's here to talk about uh, particularly the experiences in this extraordinary book, Love, Paul Gambaccini, uh, My Year Under the Yew Tree, but also about his experience with popular music and radio. He is, I think, a naturalised British citizen. Yeah, is that fair? Okay, but I think, leave that aside, he is one of the rare Americans one could describe as a British institution. Yes? Absolutely. Yes? He was, is, and remains Paul Gambaccini. Well, thank you very much. 
And strange to think how strange to think how close I came to being in a British institution. Yeah, hey, ching. <laughs> but saw I saw the goalie was off his mark. <laughs> I, I just got to tell you about Live Aid because the miracle was that it actually happened because we could never rehearse it. Of course you couldn't rehearse it. You can't take over Wembley for a week and go, and go through camera angles. And we only had a meeting the week before of the presentation team. And we were told, and this is going to happen, and these people are going to be it. And we thought, oh, okay, fine, no rehearsal. And, of course, no bright spark thought that that Perspex box, which in winter is great for football commentary, would be 35 degrees in summer. Oh, my God, did we sweat. It was unbelievable. And they wired you in so you couldn't move, you know. And he referred to links going down. We had a thing where we understood that the next link is yours. So, guess what? Brian Adams goes down from Philadelphia, and the next link was mine. So I had to talk to the world, not knowing when Brian Adams was coming back. Thank God I knew that he had done the Canadian version of Live Aid, which was uh, Tears Are Not Enough. It was called Northern Lights. That was the name of their act. And I started, I don't know if you even remember this, but I said, and he wrote this with his songwriting partner, Jim Valance, and he got Gordon Lightfoot and Joni Mitchell, and, you know, and I'm thinking, come on, Brian, come on, yeah. <laughs> you know, and thank God it came back. And I was able to tell him last year at the Ivor Novello Awards, I said, Brian, you were the subject of my most terrified moment in broadcasting. But you, you see, most people, given, you know, five minutes, ten minutes to fill, you know, most TV presenters just think, where's the script? Whereas Paul has got it in his head all the time, you know, and it's, it's all the people who co-wrote the record. And, and, and Brian Adams had more hits than Big Country. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so if I can just uh, take you back here, Paul, this is you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan show. Just a sketch in a bit of your background. Can you remember where you were when this happened? Yeah, downstairs watching TV with my family. I had been listening to music comprehensively since 1957 on radio. I'd seen Elvis on almost all his major TV appearances in 1956. I missed the Dorsey Brothers, which was at the beginning of the year. But I saw him on Milton Berle. you got to remember, in those days, people had one at most TVs in their house. And the channel chosen was chosen by Dad. So whatever Dad chose, we watched. And Dad chose to watch Milton Berle, who was the reason why Americans bought their sets in 1948. In this country, it was the Queen's coronation in 53. Milton Berle was a huge variety show host. And he had Elvis on, and he was the first to call him Elvis the Pelvis. And uh, he did uh, Hound Dog with the pelvic thrusts. And, of course, shocked the nation. And so then, uh, Ed Ed Sullivan, who gets credit for showing Elvis, was such a brilliant PR man. He had banned rock and roll. You know this because you read the book. Uh, But Bo Diddley had gone on the year before. And in rehearsal, after lunch, Ed Sullivan walked in and Bo Diddley was singing Bo Diddley. And Ed Sullivan said, you can't sing a song about yourself. (laughs) Sing a proper song. Sing Some Enchanted Evening. (laughs) So the live broadcast goes on, and Bo Diddley starts singing Some Enchanted Evening, (laughs) and then immediately goes into Bo Diddley. And Ed Sullivan is so furious, he bans rock and roll from his show. (laughs) 
So his competitor in the time slot, which was Steve Allen on NBC, Ed Sullivan being on CBS, thought, right, I'm having Elvis on. And he booked Elvis to sing Hound Dog to the dog. And this is the famous footage you've probably seen where Elvis sings Hound Dog to a basset hound who is completely uninterested. And, and Steve Allen outrated Ed Sullivan that week. And Ed Sullivan was furious because he was used to being number one in his time slot. And he thought, how am I going to get it back? He thought, right, I'm going to sign Elvis for three shows and I'm going to announce that I'm not going to show him from the waist down. And it made the front page of the New York Times. It actually made the front page of the New York Times. And we're it not going to show something. Yeah, that's, right. that's the clever bit. That's isn't right. It? Yeah. So we we now and Ed Sullivan was famous for having everybody on. Because he was on Sunday night and coming from New York, he could have all the stars of Broadway on their night off. He could have the stars of the Metropolitan Opera on their night off, the Bolshoi Ballet on its night off, plus all of the pop stars. I remember the week that you send me was number one, Sam Cooke. And they kept him on until last, but since it was a live show and they timed it wrong, they cut him off in the middle. And I was so furious, and obviously a lot of other people were too, because next week he was on in the middle of the show. Anyway... Uh, things get a bit soft, as you know, in American pop music in, in the early 60s, although 63 was a very underrated year, a very strong year with the Beach Boys, Four Seasons, Phil Spector, nonetheless, and Motown is really coming along. But Christmas week, end of 63, I am lying on the couch of our house on the porch listening to Stan Z, read Z here, Burns, W-I-N-S, New York, which was the station Alan Freed had been on in New York. And he said, at 1.40 in the afternoon, I'm now going to play a record for the dock workers on the west side of Manhattan who are in from London, uh, in from Britain, and they want to hear the song that is number one in their home country, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. The Beatles? Never heard of them. And... I heard the dog whistle. That's all I can say. I heard the dog whistle. The experience I had was replicated across America on local stations. We all heard the dog whistle, and within a month, I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one. Now think about it. The days before the Internet, the days before social media, you had to feel it. But we felt it. We talked about it. And so what happens? Ed Sullivan who had cleverly booked the Beatles because he was passing through Heathrow and saw this mob and said, what is this about? And signed him up immediately. Had him on February 7th. This is six weeks after they'd been nothing. And they had the largest television audience in history to that date, 73 million. What was it they offered that America couldn't provide itself? What, what, what was it that was so spectacularly impressive about them? Well, I always thought that it had something to do with the assassination of Kennedy. Because, as you know... It came just two or three months after, didn't it? November 22nd... Nation in mourning, yeah. November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy is assassinated. The inconceivable... You see, it wasn't just a tragedy. It was an inconceivable tragedy. Plus, he was young and he left the young family. We were just completely shattered. And that's why everybody who was alive to this day remembers where they were, because it just didn't compute. Kind of like Trump getting elected. But anyway, <laughs> so you know, it's amazing that Trump is anti-abortion, considering that he is one. <laughs> but anyway... This is a whole other podcast we're going to do quite soon. <laughs> so, 
uh, we, we were in mourning, a terrible mourning. The Singing Nun went to number one with Dominique. And then Bobby Vinton was number one with a revival of a 1940s Vaughn Monroe song. There, I've said it again. They say in psychology that a great sadness can only be overcome by a great happiness. And when we heard the Beatles, whoosh, this was the great happiness. And all of those records from before I Want to Hold Your Hand, which had been introduced on individual minor labels, were all re-promoted. Thus, April 5th, 1964, the Beatles have the top five in America. Never before, never mm -hmm. since, never again. I think we can safely say that. And it was... It, well, of course, now we can't safely say that's because they count streaming. So who knows what's going to happen. But nonetheless, it was unprecedented and... This show inspired vocations. Billy Joel, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen yeah. have all written about how they saw this show and ming, light bulb overhead goes on. And it, it is a landmark. And the same for you, surely, because you moved, you moved to, to England partly. Well, <clears throat> I have said many times that if you're going to be alive in your time, you have to engage with what there is in your time, whatever it is. And uh, in my time, there were the Beatles. And the pop music of the 60s. In America, Motown was really big too, of course, as well as Bob Dylan. I had to be part of it. Now, that meant that in 1966, when I went to university in America, I joined the radio station. And things went on from there. And it was funny, because in 1969, when we started to apply to grad schools, of course, the administration at Dartmouth College all said, apply to law school, go to law school, the future leaders of America will be lawyers. Well, as Watergate proved, the future criminals of America would be lawyers. <laughs> but I had one friend, one friend, who said, why don't you go into radio? You can do this. It didn't compute to anyone, well, you've shown you can do this, so why don't you keep doing it? But my friend John Ritchie was, was right, and, and thank God I kept doing it. So that's the Beatles. You've got nothing to say about that. Let's try this next one. Uh, this is... I think... I think... Sorry, just jumping ahead in the story here. I, so you're in... You're, you come to the UK. You, you go to university here. Yeah, yeah. University College Oxford. Uh, and to get away from Nixon, by the way. Right. And so after that, you're, you're doing what? You're kind of on the fringes of the music business or trying to get in? Or? Well, what happened was my last month at Dartmouth in, in the United States, uh, I was awakened one night after having gone to bed and the program director of the radio station said, Coakley can't do breakfast tomorrow. Uh, can you do the breakfast show? It's called Daybreak. And I said, yeah, fine. The problem was, in those days, if I was awakened shortly after going to sleep, I couldn't go back to sleep for about an hour. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? My courses are cancelled because of the student strike over the invasion of Cambodia. That hasn't happened since. I finished my thesis. My friends are asleep. And then I just had this thought. You always thought you could write a better singles review than Ed Ward. Ed Ward was oh, a singles I know Ed Ward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a singles review editor of Rolling Stone, but he was more than that. He, he, was, he was a better journalist, but he, he also was the one who reviewed the singles. So I just sat down and I wrote a review of my then favorite single, which was Band of Gold by Frida Payne. Oh, okay. 
And so I went to sleep. And I got up, went to my classes, and I thought, I can't just post one review. I've got to write another one. So I wrote a searing satire on three British pop singles, My Baby Loves Lovin', United We Stand, and that same old feeling, Pickety Witch. And uh, and I, 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 I wrote the last line, which was, if these records have their finger on the pulse of British popular taste, someone should slit the wrist. And I got back a letter from Ed Ward saying, thank God for unsolicited manuscripts. You're hired. Anything that makes me laugh as much as your White Plains, et cetera, review has to go in. So it wasn't the Frida Payne review that got me. It was the negative one. It was the negative one. That's the future in journalism. That's right. the way. Actually, and I think I'm right at the same, Paul. I think the first time I, I saw your name, it was at the end of a review in Rolling Stone of and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take the risk of telling you what this record was called. I know, I know and what I you're think do. you're gonna be able to recite the whole review. The album was The Archie's Greatest Hits. <laughs> Am I right? Ooh. Okay. Give us the review. Well the entire review was first paragraph, God no. <laughs> Second paragraph, enclosed within the grooves of this record are twelve convincing arguments against the capitalist system. <laughs> Paul Gambaccini, invoice. Superb. Will this do? <laughs> but anyway, thank God that Ed Ward let me write singles reviews for Rolling Stone. So when I came to England, my philosophy tutorial mate, Carl Merlantes, and this is the kind of thing that only happens in real life, who was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been drafted into the Marines. And he estimated that he'd killed at least 17 people. And it haunted him, and he thought about how to deal with this all his life, and then about five years ago, he published his novel called Matterhorn, and he became the oldest first-time novelist to make the top five of the New York Times bestsellers with his great Vietnam book, Matterhorn. He learned how to deal with it. So you can expect the follow-up to love Paul Gambaccini in 50 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway... So Carl said, I'm going into London. I've bought a reconverted post office van. Would you like to come with me? And I said, well, yeah, I've never met anybody who works for Rolling Stone. I can go visit the London office of Rolling Stone. Well, of course, little did I realize that a post office van only has one seat. <laughs> and, all right, and all the rest of the space is for post. So Carl was the driver and I was the bag of post all the way into London. However, we got into London we parted. I went to the Rolling Stone office in Newman Street. I walked into reception, and there was the receptionist, an attractive, young, brawless woman rolling a joint. And I thought, these people are too hip. I can't compete with them. But nonetheless, I went in, and there was Andrew Bailey, the London editor of Rolling Stone, sitting at his desk, as if on a throne, with his courtiers around him. And a man called Ray Downing who said, I'm really having trouble. I have been studying existentialism, and I can't figure out a reason to get out of bed. <laughs> anyway, Andrew, beloved by Jan Wenner, the uh, editor of Rolling Stone, uh, was also, thank God, self-admittedly lazy. And he invited me to write about whatever I wanted. 
And so for this golden uh, period, I could just write about whoever I wanted. I would go in and say, Stevie Wonder's doing his comeback gig. He got hit by a bar going through the windscreen of his uh, car and he was hit in the forehead, he was unconscious, but now he's back, he's gonna play the rainbow. I'd like to cover it, uh, interview him. Yeah, fine, yeah, great, great. And thus this, which you are showing, which was my first Rolling Stone cover. And uh, this has an embarrassing story uh, behind it. Um, well, not to Elton, to me. And that was, I spied him in a Royal Festival Hall Bee Gees concert. And uh, he was sitting a couple rows in front of me. And I thought, everyone is obsessed with Stevie Wonder and this historic series of albums he's bringing out. But actually, Elton John has now become the best-selling artist in America. It's, it's time for him to do the Rolling Stone interview, uh, which was the big cover story. So during the interval, I followed him into the loo. And while he was at the urinal, I actually said to him, hello, I'm Paul Gamacini from Rolling Stone. Would you like to do the Rolling Stone interview? Now, to his great credit, instead of just turning around in mid-flow, <laughs> he said, Helen Walters at DJM takes care of things like that. <laughs> Call her. I said, thank you. Now, I was so keen that I didn't realize that that was a very polite brush-off. <laughs> I did call Helen Walters a DJM, and she thought it was a great idea because Elton was going to be touring America, and wouldn't it be great to have him on the cover of Rolling Stone as he was touring? And so uh, I spent an afternoon in his place with our photographer, Phil Franks, Bernie Taupin, his lyricist, and Elton, did this long interview with me, and I transcribed it from the cassette player. When I saw Cameron Crowe's almost famous film, there, was, there were two moments when I was overcome with nostalgia. The first was when, full frame for three seconds, the tape recorder. And all of us who interviewed people in the decade of the 1970s know the tape recorder. Oh, my God. Uh, and then there was just a, a three-second shot of the Rolling Stone offices in San Francisco. So I typed out 120 pages of this conversation with Elton John. Ma mailed it to San Francisco where it was expected by nobody because Andrew had not checked with them to see if it was okay for me to do it. He just said to me, yeah, go do it, go do it. So it arrives and they're in a complete quandary because all of the reporters in San Francisco were fighting over themselves for the choice assignments whereas I would just go into Andrew and say, uh, McCartney, come back, band on the run, how yeah, about yeah. it? And, and so... Um, Suddenly, here's this 120-page article that they all wanted to do, but it was already done, and they knew they couldn't ask Elton to do it again. Hence, I got the cover. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how to get a scoop. Go to your nearest lavatory. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that was your entry into Radio 1, wasn't it? Because Helen Walters was married to John Walters, and John Walters was a producer of John then, Hill. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Helen Walters was the wife of John Walters, producer of John Peel. And John and John had seen me around at various showcases and receptions because in those days, pre-internet, to see the act, you had to see the act. And uh, although I was still at Oxford, I was spending half of the week in London. And believe me, Walters and Peel did go out and see the acts, hence the sessions, the tapes, and so forth. And, and Walters came to lunch with me and Helen and, and said... 
I'm starting a rock magazine program in the autumn on Radio 1. I'd like to have a uh, American Looks at the Scene. Would you like to do it? Now, the amazing thing is, when I'd been at Oxford, I'd peddled up to Radio Oxford and begged for an audition. And I, I came in and I said, uh, I've managed a commercial radio station. Can I audition for you? And, and the woman just looked up and said, are you an American? I said, yeah. She said, no, you'd take the job of a British person. <laughs> talk about deflation. And I said, is your manager here? And she said, yeah, but he'll say the same thing. And he did. Well, that was heartbreaking. Of course, I realize now that A, Britain did not have commercial radio at that time. So managing a commercial radio station cut no ice. And secondly, I was 21. So she thought I was probably lying anyway. Mm. But I'd been turned down for having an audition on local radio and I'd been invited to be on national radio. And that is life. Keep trying. So was that program Rock On or some kind of uh, it precursor was called, of it? It was called Rock Speak. Rock Speak. Rock There's Speak. a catchy one. Yeah, yeah. All systems, Freeman, look out. Well, was, the... And, was Tony Vance involved? It sounds like it would be Rock Tony Vance. No, the presenter, believe it or not, was Michael Whale. Oh, yes, I know. Who went on to become a football commentator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Michael um, made a tactical error. Because Walters liked my contribution, he expanded the 10 minutes to 15 minutes, then started giving me interviews. But Michael Whale didn't want me to do interviews with people he wanted to interview. He's not in the audience, is he? <laughs> he called Moira Bellis at Warner Brothers and said, don't let Paul... <laughs> interview Van Morrison. I want to do it. And this is what I was told by Walters. Yeah. And that's one of the main reasons. I, I don't mean to disparage him, and if he's listening to this, I'm glad you went on to a great career in sport. <laughs> However, uh, John Peel was then brought in to do the show the following year, and it was called Rock Week. And uh, we were all working at, the three of us, uh, P.O., Walters, and myself, are all working out of Walters' office. As Andy Kershaw, who would do this later, the following decade, would say, sometimes you'd have to sit on an overturned bin. There was just no space. It's incredible to think that the most influential man in popular music for at least 10 years, John Peel, uh, had this tiny room, which wasn't even his own. It was his producer's, John Walters. And all the sessions were piled up to the ceiling on reel-to-reel on tapes. And it was the nerve center of the popular music of the Western world. It's quite unbelievable. I, I, what an honor for me to just drift in and out. And, of course, I met all the punks, thanks to them. And uh, it was having a, a, a real musical education. And he was my mentor and hero. And then... Uh, I was offered the American Hit Show. So you, be you became part of the Radio 1 team, really, didn't you? Quite quickly. Yes, I, I, I was the youngest person on Radio 1, which I thought was a great honour, until Keith Chegman became the youngest person. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, all right, maybe I wasn't such a big deal after all. Um, but uh, yes, w and we did have the Radio 1 football team, and, and it was a big deal. And I remember once we were playing at Sunderland and we outdrew half the second division. And I thought, okay, this is getting a bit ridiculous. But uh, it was a big deal. Radio 1, in its peak, late 70s, had 26 million listeners a week. Uh, the average uh, was, uh, uh, most weeks, it was 21 million. 
And, of course, that'll never happen again because there's competition and fragmentation. How do you find the people you're, you're with at Radio 1? You know, the, we have they, a picture here, actually, yes. of what, pretty much the area you're talking about. She's mid oh, yes. you know. Um, and it's just brilliant because it looks like that moment when they're, they're, they're so commercially successful. That's you holding... Um, Noel Edmonds. Noel Edmonds' his leg, I think, on the right. Yeah, It's so commercially successful that everyone's just intoxicated by... Giddy with with their, their their power, their influence, and the amount of money they can make by going out and doing gigs in the evenings. What was it like, the culture at the time? I mean, what, what, what was it like to be part of that team? Well, I the funny thing is because I was so new, I never really clocked onto the fact that I was there. I mean, I, I was just glad to be on the radio again. And the guy I, I bonded with the most was Kid Kid Jensen because uh, he was on before me on Saturday. So we would see each other every week. And he also, for a time, happened to live in the same Garden Square uh, as, as my husband, Christopher Sherwood, said, the place where nothing happened. <laughs> um, but uh, we got to know uh, a kid's dog, which was called Arrow, after Nilsson's Me and My Arrow. Yeah, there's, uh, golly, there's Simon Bates. Well... Um, <laughs> Do you ever look back at these, you know, these photo calls? You think, you know, Master oh Bates. Um, but Noel, yeah. Now that was amazing because that was when Noel was leaving the Breakfast Show. There was Blackburn, and then there was Noel, and uh, Noel was uh, to show you how seriously I was taken. Although I didn't realize it, the controller of the network came in on one Saturday, Derek Chinnery, when Noel announced he was going to go. And he went into Kid to tell Kid, who had been mooted as a possible breakfast show host, that he wasn't going to get it. And then he came in to me and he said, well, uh, I just want you to know that um, we really appreciate what you're doing, but we're not going to give you the breakfast show. And I thought, <laughs> so? <laughs> you know, I mean, because I thought of myself as a peel person. And this gets back to what you were saying. There was the third floor and there was the fourth floor. And everybody who worked at Radio 1 in the 70s will know what that means. The third floor was the night times and weekends. Yeah, and the fourth floor was the daytime strip shows. Total different philosophy to broadcasting. Personified by Tony Blackburn, fourth floor, John Peel, third floor. And when I joined Radio 1, there was a tussle for the soul of the network. But it was only because after it had worked for a while that the people realized, wait a minute, there's room for both of these things. And actually, it's not going to be either John Bla uh, Peel or Tony Blackburn. It's going to be John Peel and Tony Blackburn. And so actually, they did have a detente um, at around the, the time of this picture. And uh, Noel, gee, I got to tell you, he was so good. Noel Edmonds was a great radio broadcaster, but he loved money, and he wanted to be rich. And so he, he went to TV and never looked back, because even though people wanted him to do radio, they couldn't pay him enough. But Noel got onto his TV career because he had a very useful skill. He could talk to time without panic on live TV. Uh, which was both Top of the Pops and Saturday Superstar. Uh, you're in a live situation. You don't know when it's going to end. You're going to get a... Uh, and it was Michael Hurl who was the uh, producer who noticed this. And so Michael Hurl really uh, gave uh, Noel these slots knowing that Noel was cool as a cucumber. Right, right. Do you think it was fair that that, that Tony Blackburn floor 
became such a kind of uh, whipping post, the kind of smashy and nicey kind of uh, crimes against fashion and taste, you know. The, 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 the whole world, the consensus view was that the 70s, mid-70s, you know, to, uh, Radio 1 gang were, were slightly rebarbative. I mean, did you think that was fair? <laughs> I think of my childhood friend, Steve Emmett, who came over and watched Top of the Pops, and, and one of the songs on was Naughty, Naughty, Naughty by Joy Sarney. Yeah. And he thought, this is English music? He couldn't believe it. Um, but um, he... Uh, Sorry, wow. I, I, I'm just... It's a, a beardless Graham North. <laughs> yeah. um, well, uh, it, it, it was uh, something that uh, made us cringe a lot. Because, um, as you may know, the album charts and singles charts became very different. There was a there was one week, which is to me emblematic of the whole thing. On the album chart, Mike Oldfield had one and two, and on the singles chart, the Osmonds had one and two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was hard to believe we we're in the same universe, yeah. let alone the same country. And and so suddenly, Radio One Fourth Floor was behind the Bay City Rollers and people like that which caused Johnny Walker to leave Radio 1 um, because, as you may remember, uh, he would actually introduce the chart on his lunchtime mm. show and the Bay City Rollers were number one and he hated the Bay City Rollers <laughs> and he said their fans could take a running jump. <laughs> and uh, so he was dropped. He went to uh, San Francisco, KSAN, right station, wrong Don't decade. Yeah. He should have been there in the <laughs> 60s. Johnny's one of the great survivors to the extent that people forget that for 15 years he was going from station to station trying to find a new home. Yeah. But now he's happily and deservedly at Radio 2. But uh, let's move on to Radio, yes. Radio 2. Radio 2. So, uh, you know, would you ever have predicted that, you know, this is your current home, I suppose, mainly, yes? Yeah, would with you... Radio 4, which we don't tend to talk about. I've always loved the fact that I've had a lot of Radio 4 programs for which I am not interviewed. It's very interesting. Right. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, well... Uh, would you have predicted uh, I, that this would have ended up like this? That the nation's favourite and, you know, and the, and the queen and, and, you know... Well, the amazing thing is I have met her uh, three times. But once was really touching. You were talking about Glastonbury earlier. And uh, the queen had a reception for the music business at Buckingham Palace. And they chose 20 people to be in the receiving line. And I was one of them. And Steve Wright was one of them. And Michael Levis was one of them. Right. And so were, in a line, Brian May, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck. Can you believe it? The three guitarists from the Yardbirds reunited for the first time in ages in Buckingham Palace. Did Her Majesty <laughs> remark upon this? Did you say yes? Which was her favorite uh, Yardbirds guitarist, did she say? She actually said to Eric Clapton, what do you do? Yeah, very good. Yes! Have you been doing it long? Well, quite right, right too. Yeah. She's and the then, queen. Yeah. And then she said to Brian May, what do you do? Yeah. And he said, well, ma'am, I've played on your roof. Because you remember yeah, 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 yeah. at her uh, anniversary gig. Anyway, uh, she came around to me and she said, um, how was radio? And I said, well, actually, today, uh, there are figures, there are more radio listeners than television viewers. And then she said something, and, and I think I'm allowed to share positive things with uh, 
the monarch has said, uh, and if you present it in a favorable light, you're allowed to say. But it was so touching because she said, our ma used to listen to the radio all the time. It would be the first thing she'd turn on when she walked into a room. It gave her such great comfort. And I thought, oh my God, it sounds like I'm the host of In the Psychiatrist Chair. <laughs> Very good. Very good. But so you, you've been on radio too. How long now? Since '97, so it's uh, 20 years. Okay, so 20 years, which um... longer than Radio One, which is amazing, because when you're young, every experience becomes a memory. By the time you're middle-aged or older, uh, a lot of experiences just float by, and you forget they ever happened. Um, but nonetheless, I have been at Radio Two for 20 years. I love, I love the idea of talking of middle age that, that you know maybe Nick Grimshaw and Scott Mills will, will one day be in 20 years time be on a kind of radio a BBC program playing kind of nostalgia hits of you know for people who grew up listening to Gorgon City and uh, Rag and Bone Man you know and there will be a new establishment there'll be a, there'll be a third generation well I'm, I'm really wondering about this because you've probably noticed that the latest recruits on Radio 2 are not from Radio 1. No. They're from television. Absolutely. That's true, that's true, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they're airlifting in television celebrities, yeah. most of whom are female because the priority at the moment is gender balance. And there is a problem here, which is that because they ignored female broadcasters for so long, there weren't enough radio women to equal the radio men in numbers, so they've had to airlift television people in, some of whom have made it uh, successfully, but some of whom have sounded out of place. And uh, I could go on and on about this. It's obviously a very complicated issue. We all want to uh, achieve uh, gender equality, but there are different ways of doing it. And bringing in people from television isn't necessarily the right way to do it. Now, moving on to the the events that are chronicled in your book, you know, this... Uh, sorry, I've just chosen this as an example of... Uh, oh, well, what a friendly thing for you to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, your, your, um, your serene life and career was appallingly interrupted. 4.31 morning. 4.38. 4.38, which, strangely enough, they deny. I don't know why. They say it's 5.38. Well, hello, it was my alarm clock I looked at. Um, but anyway, it was still dark, even if it was 5.38. Yeah, eight of them came round. And, um, eight people. Eight police officers police. came round. I had, I, thank God, I'd warned my husband, my PA, and my lawyer, and I said, the way this is going, don't be surprised if the knock comes in the middle of the night. Because I had been You've been rung television. by a newspaper, hadn't you, I think? Sorry? You've been rung oh, by a newspaper? Oh, this is... No, hang on, hang on. I'm going back. I'm yeah. going back. <laughs> Not like the time tunnel that we used to have yeah. already one, but... Um, I was the first person to talk about he who cannot be named. Yes. Um, because I was rung up by a breakfast... ITV, Lorraine Kelly, who'd been my workmate for uh, about 10 years on breakfast television. And, and so uh, I, I, I said, as long as it's Lorraine, I'll talk about it. 
because the documentary that exposed He Who Cannot Be Named was going to be aired later in the week. And uh, so uh, she had me on, and, um, and she showed a clip from that program and said, well, what do you think? And I just said, well, I've been waiting for this to come out for 30 years, which was an off-the-cuff comment, which was completely natural. I mean, I had been waiting for the story to come out for 30 years. Anyway, I then gave the interview I should never have given, which was Panorama. I thought, and how academically minded of me to think this, that we as a nation could have an intelligent conversation about this to try to figure out how this had happened so that it could never happen again. But instead, everyone was having a moral panic and uh, thinking in uh, terms of uh, accusing other people. And uh, so I went on to Panorama and I talked, I thought lucidly, but little did I realize that watching that program was someone who thought, oh, there he is with him. I'll accuse him. And that's how it all happened. I sh if I had not done that program, if I had not thought, let's have a serious national conversation about this, it would never have happened. So the, the, your name was kind of yoked with he whose name shall not be repeated. Uh, on Google and, you know, so any, anybody oh, went looking for you, a, that's you, right. you would Google there yourself and find pictures of him. Yes, that's right. Yeah. There was a time at the peak of the whole witch hunt when if I Googled myself, up would come pictures of him. And I thought, thank God my mother's long life has ended before this because this would have upset her. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, I knew this was this was ludicrous it's completely it's so ludicrous you know in in 10 years or maybe even in 10 minutes we'll all look back on this and think how did this ever happen it's so stupid uh but it happened because um that's what they were doing at the time and um so and the bbc almost immediately suspended your services and yes, stopped you right, uh, contributing right. to their programs and um, yes that's right you were smuggled into radio to i think in the back of a car under a blanket at one point well to, right? to pre-record a program which never went out because the minute my name was uh revealed the bbc did suspend me without ever asking what it was all about to this day, I have never had a call from the director general or any of his upper management team outside of radio. Radio people have spoken to me, but the, the upper management took me off, immediately stopped paying me for a year, never bothered to find out what it was about, just protecting their own backside. So you start off with the eight guys at you know at your door. You say they take away your diaries, don't they? They oh yes, thirty yeah. however many years, thirty-eight years, thirty-eight of years of diaries, uh, two IMAX, both my passports, and your entire archive of, of work on the computer. Oh, oh, All yes. your programs that you yeah made. yeah. I yeah. had two two uh, big uh, boxes with CDs copies of uh, programs, one from uh, BBC, one from commercial So radio. you presumably never expected to see those again? Well, it just seemed like everything was walking out the door. It just, it seemed like they were starting an Apple store. I mean, I mean, uh, they took my iPhone, they took my husband's computer, 
Um, so, you know, so, I thought maybe I should look on eBay the next day and buy some of these things back. So you, you, how long did it take you to find out what it was that they thought you'd done? <clears throat> well, uh, I was taken to Charing Cross Police Station where I had to sit in a cell for four hours. Uh, waiting for a solicitor because, of course, solicitors don't work in the middle of the night. Well, actually, I said this once, and a solicitor said, but we do. <laughs> and um, if you had called me, I would have come. Okay, maybe. But the fact is, because I, didn't ha I had never dealt with a criminal solicitor, my solicitor does wills and uh, property conveyancing, the family things... And uh, so when we finally got through to him in the morning, he didn't do any of this. So he had to get somebody who he knew who did do that kind of thing. So that guy came along. So I'd been there for four hours, um, spending half my time thinking, trying to figure out what was happening and what I was going to do. And half the time working on an acrostic puzzle by Thomas Middleton of the New York Times. God bless Thomas Middleton is all I can say. And reading The Economist and the Financial Times, which I'd snuck out of the house. And very rock and roll. Very, very suave. Yeah. I, you know, expect, I expect Steve Wright would yeah. carry the same reading. <laughs> yeah. And, and then writing down, because I knew I was going to write a book, so I wrote down the, the, the messages which were on the roof, which is, so if you lay down in the cell, you would see, Crime Stoppers Anonymous, if you have a tip related to drugs, call such and such a number. Um, anyway, um, I noticed uh, some other things, which weirdly enough, uh, when Jim Davidson published his book, I... Uh, I Read it all in one day. Of course you had to. Because in those days, uh, the early stages of the witch hunt, we were just beginning to get to know each other. And, uh, and, and so you, you, you longed for any piece of knowledge. What is really going on here? And anything that was a parallel with somebody else's case, you jumped on. And one of the things I jumped on in Jim Davidson's case was when they took him to the cell, he didn't have any toilet paper either. <laughs> And I thought, is this uh, a trend? Do they think, do they think we're going to hang ourselves with toilet roll? Anyway. Um, so, yeah, there I was. And uh, they wouldn't uh, re reveal the disclosure sheet until uh, the solicitor turned up. So the solicitor turns up. He says, okay, we have 15 minutes to look at this together. And you're going to write a statement. And then you're going to be interviewed by the police. And so I, I look at this. And I'm thinking... Who am I reading about? Um, because the whole thing was two guys I've never known in my life with whom I supposedly had affairs of at least three years duration with in the decade before I even started having same-sex relations. Well, you can't be more than 100% wrong, but the Metropolitan Police keep trying. And you can legally print the name of the person who's been accused, but, but, the, but allow, extend anonymity to the people who are the accusers. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. To this day, you will never know that <laughs> was the name of the man who accused <laughs> me. <laughs> And actually, that is the first time I've ever said his name. And, 
And I know you will have to bleep it out yeah, or else they'll yeah, take yeah. you to court. That's the first were, time we've you, ever bleeped a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> were, were you, at a tangent, were you, were you, um, were you kind of uh, amazed by some of the tactics used by the press or just amazed that they were used on you? There's a bit where, where you, you say that journalists try to get into your block by carrying heavy shopping to you. Oh, the yes. They live next door. That was wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, wonderful. I mean, uh, such a farce. I mean, God... You understand that the papers want to increase their circulations, but you are amazed that they have no sense of pride. They get taken for a ride by the police, and they don't care, or they don't seem to care. I mean, you showed that headline. How ridiculous. Doesn't the Sun have any sense of shame that uh, they were taken for a ride by the police? Unbelievable. So anyway, so this woman shows up at the door. I can't leave the house for a week, by the way, because uh, the press are around the house. I, I live on the 12th floor of a building. And uh, with Cliff, it was two weeks. He, he couldn't leave for two weeks. But just to show that I'm not as big a star as Cliff. <laughs> um, but uh, this woman tailgates into the building, and she identifies herself as being a reporter from the Evening Standard. I always say identifies themselves because, of course, I can't prove that it was the Evening Standard. Anyway, so there she is, and she keeps ringing the doorbell. How do we get her to go away? Um, and so finally, um, um, Chris calls down to the concierge and says, come and get this woman. And so the minute the concierge uh, appears at the, at the lift, the woman legs it, and they find her hiding in the basement. It's unbelievable. Uh, within the, f the first day, every one of my relatives in the world was harassed. Uh, my brother in New York, and thank God, while I was at the police station, Chris had the, my husband, had the smarts to call all of our relatives and say, don't say anything to the press. You know, we just assumed, he just assumed that the police would have leaked it to everybody. So, my brother in New York... <laughs> His apartment door, there's a knock on it. It's a guy who says, hi, I'm Joe Bloggs from the Daily Mirror. I'm the American representative of the Daily Mirror. Paul and I are friends. We've worked on stories before. Uh, can we have a chat? And my brother said, no, go away. Then he looks out the window, and there's another reporter trying to tailgate into the building behind a legitimate resident, and he yells out to the legitimate resident, don't let that man in. So she turns around and says, in typical New York fashion, don't even think about coming in here. <laughs> and then uh, somebody else calls him up on the telephone. My brother in Switzerland was phoned. My two female cousins in the state of Connecticut living in different cities with different surnames were approached. Can you dig it? Talk about research. Uh, Christopher's parents, who live in a small village in Norfolk, were visited. My former lodger, living in the north of England, was visited. Uh, this was a real thorough... But it's amazing the kind of police resources that appear to be thrown, were thrown behind this, isn't it? You know, I, th <laughs> I think you give the, the story of, uh, of somebody who, who shared this flat that you lived in many, many years ago, you know, and uh, who I think is in, in New York or somewhere, and he has two policemen turn up and interview him oh. for eight hours? Oh, yes. But I knew from the first day that, that uh, I was up against the full weight of the state with no financial restrictions, because 
As I'm leaving, one of the police says, well, don't worry, if you're innocent, we'll find out. We've got 20 people on the case. And I'm thinking, uh, moi against 20 people? Oh. Yeah. So, bit, yes. you, you mentioned that, that uh, one of Jimmy Tarbuck's accusers uh, said that he had sexually harassed them on Top of the Pops in 1963. And, and you point out, or they, everybody pointed out, that Top of the Pops didn't start till 1964. And that Jimmy yeah. Tarbuck had never actually presented it. So was it encouraging for you when you discovered that they were getting it so appallingly wrong with, with other people? As, I, as we came to know each other, and you talk about jungle drums, and they, they worked in this case because all of the innocent suspects knew we were all innocent, and we talked to each other, and the accusations were so ludicrous. They were off the scale. I mean, it's, you see, because every false accusation, accusation is not just he did me. It comes within the context of yeah. a story. And they gild the lily in ways which are so bizarre. It, it I, has to be. Isn't there a threesome in your, in, in mentioned? Yeah, in yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is this is probably one of my best spontaneous remarks of all time. I think that's why you're asking me this. I had a co-accused. Uh, I was I was U tree fifteen, and this guy was U tree sixteen, and he had been my neighbor in the late seventies and early eighties, and. So, uh, they didn't tell me I had a co-accused until after lunch. But, but Christopher had, had told me during the lunch break, I, I had a phone call, he said, a second person has been arrested. So, I go in, and a second person had been arrested, and he was being questioned upstairs. And I was accused of having a threesome with this person, that I was supposedly buggering this 14-year-old boy while my co-accused was sucking him off. And my immediate reaction, without missing a beat, was... Not only have I never had a threesome in my life, if I did, it would not include my neighbor. <laughs> His introduction into a sexual situation would turn me into Mr. Floppy. <laughs> and the next day I thought, you know, they should have worried after they heard me say that because that is the reaction of an innocent person. Because a guilty person would have said, I've never had sex with a 14-year-old. But because I couldn't imagine the 14-year-old, but I could well imagine my neighbor, who incidentally wore a wig, um, I, that's what I spoke about first. And this is how, this is a very serious point, in the witch hunt, there were three divisions of cases. One, there were a few genuine offenders. Let's not forget that. Second, the accused had been met by their accuser. And there was an attempt to criminalize something that had previously been regarded as pest, or else uh, someone had a long-standing grievance that they were now trying to translate into action because this was the accusation du jour, or whatever. The third category is what I call the who are these people category. And if I met someone and their first reaction was not, I didn't do it, which anyone can say, innocent or guilty. But if their first reaction was, who are these people? That is the reaction of an incredulous person like me. When I saw that sheet and I thought, who are these people? And where this, re of course, this was the case with Cliff Richard, who I knew, having known him for 40 years, would have been, been innocent anyway. But when I heard the story, and, and he said, who is this guy? Um, but... Harvey Proctor. I was coming out of my book publisher, and Harvey Proctor, former MP, was going in trying to sell a book. 
and, and we had to talk, of course. He had not yet given his famous news conference. He said, you won't believe this, but the police have been around in numbers, blah, 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 blah. I, I've been, accu been accused of having a slice and dice session with Ted Heath and of murdering three people. Slice and dice. You know, and, 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 and I'm I thought... i stuff. Well, no, I, I... Okay, slice and dice is my terminology. That's it. Uh, the, the real accusation, as you probably know, was Harvey Proctor supposedly was trying to castrate Nick uh, with a penknife, but uh, Edward Heath intervened to save the balls of Nick. Well, anyway, uh, but the point being, with all of these ridiculous accusations, Harvey Proctor did not say, I didn't do it. He said, who is this guy? Meaning Nick. Well, now it turns out... When I say we know who Nick is, the public doesn't know, but uh, we know who Nick is. But the point being, if somebody says, who is this guy? You know he's innocent. Yeah, yeah, but it was, it was all very lurid stuff, wasn't it? It, was all, it all seemed to be come out of the kind of forum letters page or the, or the, the novels of Dennis Wheatley. Well, they? yes, and, and they always or often involve celebrities because they're yes. trying to get... Yeah. The, the false accusers try to get the attention of the police. So they throw in a couple of irrelevant celebrities just to make the story more interesting. And the police had changed their tune completely, hadn't they? Because there's a bit in the book where you said that Bill Wyman had gone to the police to say that he had slept with a 14-year-old girl, and I, I admit this, and they, they dismissed him and said they weren't interested. So there was yes, a massive overreaction on the part Yes, that was truly interesting. That was truly interesting. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, I had lunch with Keith Harris... Uh, who's uh, now OBE. Um, this is not Orville. This is Orville's... Uh, oh, no, this is not Orville. This is Stevie... This I should make this clear. This is Stevie Wonder's manager, okay, Keith Harris. Fine. There's a big difference. In case you're looking around this, for Orville. Yeah. Believe me, Stevie Wonder has <laughs> made better records than Orville. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Keith Harris and I are having lunch, and he says, well, what about Bill Wyman? He, he, he went to the... You know, and, and I said, you're kidding me. And, and he said, no, no, I read it. So I Googled it, and when I got home, son of a gun, Bill Wyman went in and said, okay, now you're going to hear about me? Yeah, obviously, Mandy, you remember Mandy? Um, and they said, oh, we're not interested people like you, go away. <laughs> we're not doing your law this week. No, there was very definitely a sense that uh, there was a class of people they couldn't go after because they were too big. So they could go after uh, Roy Harper, but they couldn't go after yeah. Led Zeppelin. Yeah. They did go after Roy Harper, who was acquitted. Um, uh, don't tell me that Roy Harper led a more lascivious life than Led Zeppelin. Sorry, don't believe it. And um, with... Uh, this is just an allegation, by the way. Just an... <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> No, no, I, I, neither of them ever had sex with anybody. Um, <laughs> no, um, with, uh, gee, um, I was going to say with Paul McCartney, he went to U-Tree and he said, you will hear stories that I slept with many women. And that is so, but they were all of age. But when even Paul McCartney goes to the police to say, you know, there's nothing to this, when he hasn't even been accused of anything, you know there's a moral panic going on. And in the moral panic, as you know, the police succumbed. And uh, there was the uh, 
ludicrous advice given, believe every accuser. And this was national police policy. And in Jim Davidson's book, it says, when, when he asked one of his officers, why are you doing this? It's so stupid. And he said, well, we have been told to believe every accusation, no matter how ludicrous. That hopefully will change, but probably not for the right reason. The reason it will change is because the overwhelming majority of accusations made against celebrities turned out to be not only false but preposterous, wasting millions of pounds of taxpayer money. Uh, I'm thinking now of the Enrique's report, only 11% of which has been released. But the 89% that has not been released tells of false accusation cases. And uh, the police now know something that they, it didn't even occur to them when they went on TV and said, accuse famous people, you will be believed. It didn't occur to them that there is such a thing as a distressed individual. That's my polite term. Of course, the general public immediately assumed when, that, when they heard I was accused, oh, someone wants money. Well, a few people did want money, but there are a lot of people out there who were distressed individuals, and I'm sorry to say the person I named so indiscreetly, I, I believe is a distressed, I, I, I can only believe is a distressed individual because I was told after my case was over, not by the police, but when I mentioned it to a policeman, he confirmed it, that he had been expelled from school for making a false sexual allegation. So, you know, isn't it, don't you feel a bit annoyed that hundreds of thousands of pounds of your money was wasted on something so utterly ridiculous? So this went on for, you know, a year, really. The and, Supremes had nothing to do with it. And the Supremes I, had nothing to do with it. I've, Supremes I've are, never had... Uh, sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> I just wanted to draw you... To, the, 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 the book is in the form of a diary, you know, oh, yes, of the yes, appalling, yes. you know, experience of being dangled out there and your bail is renewed and so that forth. That is cute, actually. That really and, is cute. Uh, I just wanted to... You, you occasionally record your favourite records throughout this, you know, which are <laughs> no, no, nothing more than I'd expect. And the number one record is always Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, which is alleged... It's probably the most controversial popular, popular recording of all time, isn't it? This is about a slave yeah, illicit slave. sex yeah. in the slave quarters, Paul. Yeah, yeah OK. Now, <laughs> a broader perspective. And it's finally been overtaken by Street Fighting Man. That shows you how angry I did get. But... Um, I was always a beat... You know, they, they always used to say, Beatles or Stones. You know, I remember once uh, Nicky Campbell led off a Radio Academy interview with me, and he said, Simon Bates or Norman Bates? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to think about it. And I said, no. Unfortunately, I, uh, I didn't have to think about it. <laughs> and I said, oh, Norman Bates. Yeah. He only killed three people. <laughs> but... Um, in the Beatles versus Stones debate, as we lived through it, I was always a Beatles person because I thought there was just that quality of songwriting. However, when you're angry, 
And anger was one of the only emotions left to me as a private person during this whole preposterous period. The stones are angrier. And uh, brown sugar, although I'm well aware, you know, <laughs> I now would actually uh, choose another Stones record to play on the radio because I don't want to disseminate that kind of attitude anymore. You know, and there's some people who are even ahead of me in, in, in that and, and are extending it into, into realms that we, would even, that we might consider ludicrous. On Pick of the Pops, last Saturday, we were not allowed to play Black-Skinned, Blue-Eyed Boys by The Equals. Can you dig it? Because of racial content. Well, anyway, so yeah, uh, The Stones, in my chart, and, and, and because I had to buy a new iMac and load it all up again, thanks, coppers, um, so I could tell my top ten. And Brown Sugar... Because of the aggro, not because of the lyrics. and But also, uh, Let's Spend the Night Together is up there. You can't always get what you want. Why uh, did you change tack with the Beatles? Because you said that, you, know, you were mostly a McCartney man. But during this terrible ordeal, you, you, you started playing you know, Number Nine Dream by Lennon and Lennon's... Whatever, gets, whatever gets you through the night. Yeah. Yes, this is, this is amazing. Um, they just resonate with the moment. When you have an experience as profound as, as I was having, sometimes songs suddenly seem as if they've found their moment. Oh, yeah. this is why this was written. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like when Chris and I got married, we, we started planning a year in advance. And I didn't want the ceremony to be trite. But on the other hand, I didn't want it to be like people who make their own vows and they're twee and sentimental. And I thought, okay, we know we're going to do this, but we don't know what our vows are going to be yet. And then about three months later, I just suddenly thought, I was sitting at the computer, All the Way, All the Way by Frank Sinatra. Those are vows. When somebody loves you, it's no good unless they love you all the way. Through the good and lean years and through all the in-between years, come what may. Who knows where the road may lead us? Only a fool would say. But if you let me love you, it's for sure I'm going to love you all the way. Vows. So we recited the lyrics of all the way. Thank you, Sammy Kahn. So songs find their moment. They do, they do. It's emotional extremity, isn't it? That kind of. Ah, uh, yeah. oh, you, You're a phenomenally well-connected person, Paul. <laughs> let's yeah, let's make no bones about this. You know, because your experience on the radio, the music business, your charity work, you know, your interest in classical music and the theatre and so forth. You know a lot of people, Paul, don't you? It's, they don't deny inevitable, it, Paul. inevitable, and. Uh, but these are some of the people who kind of came to your aid. So this is Ian McKellen, this is, this, is, this is Stephen Fry, Janet Street Porter, uh, Tim, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Joe Brand and uh, Elton John, all very high-profile people made very public statements. In fact, uh, Stephen Fry withdrew from a Labour Party uh, event to draw attention to well, the fact that you had actually, been uninvited to... He offered to. Okay, here's here's what happened, and this introduces the subject of the Labour Party. Oh my God, I'm gonna I'm just gonna have to <laughs> elide over that one, as most of the country is now doing anyway. Um, but um, for 25 years, I had supported and raised money for the Labour Party. I hosted a, a, a show in a West End theatre for Neil Kinnock. I hosted a 
a campaign meeting for Gordon Brown. And, although I'm now beginning to sound certifiably insane, I hosted a celebrity fundraiser in my home for Ed Miliband when he started. And then I was arrested. And I was uninvited to a Labour Party Thousand Club meeting, which is uh, the leading middle-level fundraising effort by the Labour Party. Uh, of course, there's rank and file at the bottom, and there's rich donors at the top. But in the middle, if you donate a thousand pounds a year, you get to meet Tony in the cabinet or Ed in the shadows. And <laughs> so um, I got uninvited. Now, the, the, the sublime thing about this, which they didn't even realize, was with the Thousand Club was inspired by me back in 1995 because um, I had been named philanthropist of the year for raising 300,000 pounds for the Terence Higgins Trust because uh, Virginia Bottomley, who'd been health minister, had cut the 300,000 pounds for the Terence Higgins Trust because she'd been watching TV and a man climbed into the lion's den at Regent's Park Zoo and she thought, we must give more money to mental health. So she took the money from the Terence Higgins Trust, gave it to mental health, which left the Terence Higgins Trust with zip. And I was a patron and I thought, well, this is terrible for 10 seconds, and I thought, but really, all they have to do is find 300 people to each give a 1,000, and they can call it the 300 Club. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I, I did it, and it turned out I didn't even need to find 300 because George Michael gave 50,000 anonymously. That was one of his anonymous charities. So, uh, there we are. I get named Philanthropist of the Year by the National Charity Fundraisers because it had never, I had done something right, unintentionally, which was, I hadn't asked people for money. I told them the amount of money to give. And no charity had ever dared do this. So the Labour Party copied it, the Thousand Club. So here, we are, here I am, disinvited from the Thousand Club. Anyway, they're then going to have a fundraising dinner. And uh, I'm told that Stephen Fry, my friend, is going to host it. And, and so I say to Stephen, uh, Stephen, the Labour dinner? And he says, yes. And I said, no. And he said, what do you mean? And I, and I explained this to him. And You've never seen the clouds go over the sun as fast as I did then. And he said, I'll have to withdraw. But then I said, and this is cutting the story short, you don't have to. If you want to appear, appear. But remember, you will be the one with the microphone and you can say what you want to say. And so he did. In the presence of Keir Starmer, ladies and gentlemen, there are a couple of you who may know how significant that name is. Uh, he said that Utree, uh, uh, well, he questioned the integrity of Operation Utree. And he said that we must remember that uh, the Labour Party stands for justice and uh, innocent until proven guilty, blah, 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 blah. Ed Miliband was airlifting Keir Starmer into a safe seat, Frank Dobson, Holborn, and, uh, and uh, St. Pancras. And uh, Keir Starmer was the uh, former director of public prosecutions. And he is the person who Michael Gove, when he was justice minister, told me was the justification for the witch hunt. And if you don't like what I just said, if you are an adherent of Keir Starmer, or if you are Keir Starmer, blame Michael Gove, not me. Nonetheless, 
Stephen returns to his seat next to Ed Miliband, and Ed Miliband says to him, I can't believe you fucking said that. <laughs> and the Daily Mail, always having spies at Labour Party events, uh, runs a story about it. And they ask a source close to Keir Starmer, <laughs> of course, which we all know usually means either Keir Starmer himself or his identical twin, um, says blah, 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 blah. And then a spokesman for Ed Miliband uh, says he gives Operation Utree his full support. His thoughts are with the victims. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And, of course, it turned out, Ed, that we were the victims. Because, as I've said many times before, if Operation Utree had been a football team, it would have been relegated. It lost such a high percentage of its matches. The Metropolitan Police bizarrely are determined to brand this as a great success. They had a speaking tour in America where uh, a man who had run it uh, for a while said that uh, Operation Utree has become a brand. And I said, yeah, of course it's become a brand for dishonesty and maliciousness. Um, and uh, it's incredible to think that of the millions spent on Utree, the number of people sent to prison for the first time is two. Max Clifford, Rolf Harris. The number of people sent to prison for a second time, three. Gary Glitter, Chris Denning, Dr. Michael Salmon. That's a pretty low success rate. And that success rate was even worsened by Operation Midland, where, as you remember, almost every famous person of the last 40 years, including the nation's greatest living war hero, was accused of serial pedophilia and or mass murder, all on the basis of one person. Uh, this ridiculous... Uh, this is where Keir Starmer comes in, because Michael Gove said that the National Police Federation picked up on Keir Starmer's words that because it takes great courage for an abused person to come forward, they must be telling the truth. Well, he didn't study logic at university because it may take great, and does take great courage for an abused person to come forward. It also takes great courage for a fantasist to come forward or for a distressed individual to come forward. The courage is the same, the accuracy is not. With that dinner, where Ed Miliband airlifted Keir Starmer into a safe seat, the Labour Party became the party of injustice, the party of the witch hunt. And it now has two prominent witch finders in the shadow cabinet. Speaking as someone who supported and raised money for the Labour Party for a quarter of a century, I must ask any of you who have done the same, leave it now. Labor must never be elected again. If it is, no one in this room is safe from the scourge of false allegation. When, well, when you, your innocence was, was uh, you know, your, the case was resolved and your innocence declared. Did, 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 Amazing well, how, how humorless how, I get when I'm serious. How, how, I, I, and I'm very sorry. Just, just how, what happened with the BBC? I don't think at any point any senior person in the BBC rang to to apologize or to talk to you or no they just said can you turn up tomorrow and uh, you know, that's pretty yeah. much as if nothing had happened 
as if nothing had happened, but something had happened. The time to talk about the management of the BBC will probably be later this year. It, 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 uh, can you tell us any more about that? Well, no, it's just obvious. I mean, Cliff Richard has sued the BBC as well as the South Yorkshire police. It's very unwise to talk about a case that's underway, even if it's somebody else's. Um, but my thought about what the BBC did is in this book. As a matter of fact, and, and it was in the, the podcast that I did with um, Trevor Dan, whom some of you may have read. Um, but uh, I want to um, just tell you how I responded when Cliff was raided. Um, now, oh yeah, okay. One good thing about writing this book, which I promised to do while I was in the cell for four hours. You arrest a journalist, he keeps a journal. No surprise. 14th August, 2014. Chris comes onto the terrace and tells me he's received an email from a friend. It reads simply, well, finally, Cliff. So it begins. We read the news on the BBC website. A convoy of police have entered the Berkshire home of Sir Cliff Richard. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then the BBC covers it. I am so mad about this, I email the reporter, a personal acquaintance from my BBC days which, of course, then were over, as you may remember. Uh, I hope this finds you happy and healthy, I begin. Why do you acquiesce in totalitarianism? Why did you not mention in your Cliff Richard report that the media had been tipped off about the police raid of which you showed so much footage? Who supplied your aerial footage? God? Why do you not name the recognized intermediary through whom the police spread their malevolence? Are you proud to be part of the witch hunt? Regards, Paul. <laughs> so you don't... Copy sent to Tony Hall, no response. Well, look, you don't pull any punches, Paul, you know, in, in, in what you've been talking about uh, you know, tonight, and you don't pull any punches in the book either, which is an extraordinary account. It really is of a, of a terrible experience that nobody should have to go through. But thanks very much for coming along this evening and talking about it. Would you please thank... Paul Gambaccini. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.